This is PhD Mystified, a series about the unspoken challenges of becoming a scientist. We invite faculty from the University of Pennsylvania to share their personal journeys and reflect on the struggles that students and early career scientists face today. In this episode, psychology professor Dr. Sudeep Bhatia talks about how studying decision-making has impacted his own choices. He also shares his thoughts on choosing a research question, family pressures, and how he gets the courage to face self-doubt and take risks. How did we get here? Uh, so, um, so I guess starting in high school, I, I, I'm from India originally. Um, my, my father was a mid-level uh, diplomat for the Indian uh, uh, Embassy Corps. So we moved around the world, and uh, that's kind of what gave me exposure to... Um, oh, I know you. Uh, that's what gave me exposure to... Uh, to essentially the American education system, because if you're, you know, if you're, you know, if, if your parents work with, say, the Indian embassy, or most embassies typically go to uh, either American schools or international schools or British schools. So I went to a variant of these three growing up, um, and uh, I don't think I was ever the most uh, hardworking child. Uh, I, I think uh, I wasn't a bum, but 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 I I, I didn't I, I suppose I didn't take. Um, institutionalized academics all that seriously. I um, managed to get into Tufts University, which is a, you know, not a bad university. Um, uh, my parents, being middle-class Indian parents, wanted me to study engineering or sort of medicine. And uh, at that stage in my life, I was, what, 19 years old, uh, I was very much into philosophy. And uh, you know, I was concerned with these basic questions about what's the meaning of life? Uh, you know, why are we here? And the last thing I wanted to do was study engineering or computer science, which is what my parents wanted me to do. Um, uh, so, <laughs> what is the meaning of life, right? <laughs> well, you know, if, if you're an 18 or 19-year-old boy, um, and you, know, re- you read Friedrich Nietzsche, for example, the, the message you take away is that the meaning of life is sort of choose your own path, go your own way, you know, make your own whatever, um, which is quite the opposite of what my parents want me to do, which is, middle-class Indian engineering student, possibly followed by MBA and, you know, a uh, normal, normal job. Um, and uh, uh, so, yeah, so I wanted to study philosophy, and, and I, you know, I poked around in the philosophy literature. I didn't work really hard, unfortunately, at this stage in my life either, at least not hard from a sort of institutionalized academic perspective. My grades weren't awesome. Um, and, uh, and eventually, I, I felt that the meaning of life is, is to choose your own path, right? so to, to, to make choices. But if you ask... You know, if you say the meaning of life is to make choices, then the question naturally arises, what is choice? Um, And I figured that what I would want to do most in life is to study choice itself, right? Because because, uh, this will perhaps get me closest to answering this question of what is the meaning of life. And so I started studying choice. And and I was, let's face it, I wasn't good at philosophy. But it turned out that I was, (laughs) I got, you know, I, I, I think... I think you need to be really smart to do philosophy, and I'm, I'm, I'm not, I'm not, I don't have the clarity of thought to, to do philosophy. But um, economics, right, which was what I, what I convinced my parents I was doing, I turned out to be pretty good at economics. Like, I mean, I didn't even work, and I would get good grades. And so I said, all right, what can I do that studies choice um, that makes my parents happy so they don't, they don't totally lose it? Like, you know, they were already stressing out. Um, so what can I do that makes my parents happy that studies choice? Um, and so behavioral economics, which in 2000, I believe, five or six, 
um, was was quite an emerging field at that at that at that stage. So behavioral economics, for those of you who aren't familiar with it, is is essentially uh, economists realizing that human behavior isn't perfectly rational and internally consistent. That human behavior is sensitive to contextual factors. Um, that people can display uh, important inconsistencies that then influence their well-being, that influence uh, uh, markets and societies, and so on and so forth. Okay, so at that point, Kahneman, uh, Daniel Kahneman had won a, a Nobel Prize around 2001, 2002. So, so behavioral economics was in the rise. And so, uh, again, I was at Tufts University, so uh, no one at Tufts, or really in most places, was, was doing behavioral economics research. But at Harvard, there was this guy called David Leibson. Some of you guys have heard of him. Especially if you do, uh, uh, you know, neuroecon and and and, uh, and uh, that kind of thing. So so I would bike over to to Harvard to Cambridge, and sit in in this behavioral economics lecture, which then really really had an impact on me. I said, Wow, this is this is stuff that I really really want to do. Um, and at that point, you know, I was kind of realizing that, you know, if you do want to make a choice, you know, live your life meaningfully and and forcefully, then you got to stop bumming around. You got to, you know, take things seriously, work hard, um, you know, really do well in class, even if you find the idea of institutionalized academia to be complete bullshit. So, uh, so, 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 you know, so, so sophomore, junior year, I started, uh, you know, working hard, and and uh, I found that I wasn't bad at the things that I thought was that I thought I was bad at. So, in sophomore year, I took a linear algebra class. Linear algebra is a um, it comes after calculus, so it's a, it's a, it's a basic area in, in math. I mean, it's not particularly hard, uh, but I didn't do that well, right? And I thought I was bad at math. Um, the reason I didn't do well, as it turns out, was because um, this class was on Friday morning, and I, uh, <laughs> 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 uh, you know, if you're like, uh, you know, if you're, you know, doing proofs and that sort of thing, it's, it's just, not, you know, on Friday morning and, you know, Thursday night, you don't exactly <laughs> sleep too much. It's, uh... Well, whatever. So, 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 well, that was sophomore year. Junior year, I realized I'm not that bad at math. Like, I took some, you know, high-level math classes. I did really well, uh, just because I would work hard and I, and I would do it well. And that was, a, you know, an important turning point in my life. Um, at that stage, I realized that you could do a PhD in this thing called behavioral economics, uh, or more generally, you could do a PhD. That was not clear to me at all until until sophomore junior year. Uh, it also helps that uh, uh, what this was 2007 2008. So there was a you know, the housing market crisis and, 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 and uh, the recession was coming on. So, so um, a PhD didn't seem like a bad idea, especially because it allowed me to make my parents happy, study choice, uh, and also well, have some kind of measly income. So, uh, so I applied around uh, and uh, eventually ended up doing uh, my PhD at Carnegie Mellon University in this really, really weird department called the Department of Social and Decision Science. It's not social indecision sciences. It's, uh, <laughs> The, that could be a reasonable uh, name for that department as well. Um, <laughs> uh, <laughs> so I got to this department. I wanted to do behavioral economics. But Carnegie Mellon University also has a PhD program in psychology. Um, uh, and I started taking psychology classes from the psych department. Um, and that's where I discovered cognitive science. I had never taken a cognitive science class before then. So all of this kind of you know, kept me with one foot on in the study of behavior, but then the other foot moving towards the study of cognition uh, and towards the use of computational models to study cognition. Uh, so, so, you know, so I was a PhD student and, and I wanted to do this thing which is study human behavior, like behavioral econ kind of stuff, but from a cognitive and computational perspective. 
there weren't really that many people in the world doing that at that point. Um, and uh, my advisor didn't know anything about this, and really no one knew that much about it. I mean, uh, there were people, for example, in, in certain psychology departments using things like drift diffusion models, some of you guys might have heard about, got really excited by these models. And no one in my department at all had any idea what I was doing. Uh, and I kind of took the risk to just do research in this really, really weird area that no one knew anything about. And I was lucky enough that my research paid off. And uh, uh, I think I was, I was there at the right time because since then, drift diffusion models have become more and more popular. The computational approach to studying uh, choice behavior has become much more popular, not just in, in, in psychology, but also in, in, in economics, right? Um, uh, I think, uh, you know, since then, data has exploded, and our ability to study human behavior using data science methods uh, uh, is, is now much, much uh, more developed. And so, so, so the kind of investment that I made as a PhD student in sort of picking up some computational techniques are now, it feels to me, paying off. Um, I did a postdoc. I graduated a bit early from my PhD, and I did a postdoc at University of Warwick that had, in the whole world, it was like only one group of people that were really building cognitive models of human choice behavior. Well, there were a couple, but, but University of Warwick had the most concentrated group. And, and they told me they'd give me an assistant professor position if I stuck around for a one-year postdoc. I guess that was their way of, uh, of making sure that I was not you know, out there and that I'd be someone that they did, did actually want in their department. Uh, and I got a pretty nice postdoc position where I didn't have any supervisors. I just had some research funds. And again, I just did whatever I wanted, which at that point was building computational models of human choice behavior. Uh, kind of as I was starting my postdoc, this position at University of Pennsylvania opened up, all right? Um, and there are not that many psych departments that are looking for someone to, uh, who works in sort of behavioral science, behavioral econ broadly construed. Um, the reason that UPenn has this teaching need, which, you know, it's, a, it's, a, it's a fundamentally a teaching need, uh, uh, is, is because it, uh, it has a PPE major, the philosophy, politics, and economics major. Uh, and the person who who fulfilled that teaching need, who was an assistant professor in the psychology department uh, uh, at that stage, he didn't get tenure, all right? Um, so, so they need another person, someone who was kind of capable of teaching behavioral econ and was able to sort of work in that space, but was also a psychologist and interested in psychology and, you know, publishing in psych journals. So turns out there are not that many people in the world doing that. And I was lucky, and I, I, I was one of the people, it was a very nice fit, and uh, uh, you know, I got the job. So I, I cut my postdoc short. I came here after a year of the postdoc, um, a year and a half, and uh, um, and I started uh, at UPenn in 2015. And so since then, been gradually adding people to to, to, to my lab. Uh, I feel right now we're at sort of our peak size, um, which is you don't really need too many people to, if you study just choice behavior. You don't really need like a massive, massive lab. And and I think it's at a very beautiful equilibrium. Uh, my own lab is not here. I told them not to come because they probably have heard these things from me many, many times before. But, but I feel we're at a good stage. Um, on a personal note, we, me and my wife just had a child. So, uh, so, so uh, you know, I guess that's a sort of turning point in my life as well. And that's where we are right now. Um, did you have, um, what, was, what was your mentorship situation like? Were, were there people who were able to sort of advise you along an unconventional, along an unconventional path? Or was this, um, you're thinking this, is, this stuff is really cool? Yeah, so, so yeah, I guess I didn't have mentorship. No, I just, I, I, had, I had a patron. So George Lowenstein, my, 
my, my official advisor, he was genuinely a patron. Like I had, he had this, you know, I had a lot of money, so I said, hey George, I, I want to run some studies. Got a couple of thousand dollars, run some studies. Um, I wanted to get a job as an assistant professor at UPenn. He knew that, he, he kind of knew that I suppose I was a hardworking, uh, uh, well, he, he was my patron and he wrote me what I presume was a letter of recommendation that, <laughs> that, that the psychology department on reading was felt compelled to, you know, it was convincing enough that they gave me uh, uh, this job, right? So I, you know, I think it's important, I mean, kind of looking back, I wouldn't say that uh, people should really do what, what I did. I think it's important early on to realize what you want to do and then find the mentorship that will help you do it. So find, so figure out what you want to do and, and, and go work with those people. Email, if you're, in a, and if you're in a PhD program and you're like, oh, this, what I'm doing right now is not a perfect fit. Well, make a decision then and there. If you want to stay there, then commit to what you're doing and do it well there. Otherwise, go do what you want to do elsewhere. Um, so you know, don't be marred by indecision. Uh, figure out early enough what you want to do and then find the mentorship and find the sort of institutional structure that will support it. Um, so definitely, definitely don't go out, go out on your own. I think that's, that's probably not the, the right way to do it. But if, if, if you are genuinely interested in something, then, then do it. Don't, don't, let it. don't let the fact that there's no one else telling you what to do hold you back either. Like that's also terrible. Um, uh, you know, you, take initiative. That's, so if you, you have an idea you think is good, do it. Or do it, you know, commit to it, and then do it. So, so. What made you, w w at what point did you realize you wanted to be in academia? I think uh, you know I was always interested in, in kind of um, you know reading and and uh, reading books that sort of thing. Um, I yeah I, I wanted to be a writer for a long time. I uh, um, you know I wanted to study philosophy. I mean, where else can you study philosophy but in academia? But and I think at some, but I only realized that, that a PhD is a career path, like around uh, sophomore or junior year. And like no one in my family has ever done a PhD, and my parents, you know, middle class Indian mentality is so so risk averse. It's basically like everyone does engineering. I kid you not. This is like a fact. Everyone does freaking engineering undergrad degree, even people who shouldn't be doing it. Um, and and you know my parents are just so so resistant to this weird thing called a PhD. Like who does that? Um, or they didn't know anyone, and so, so uh, I didn't know about the fact that you could do a PhD until at least my sophomore or junior year. When did your family come around? What, what, what was it like? Uh, is it at the point where you know you get a you get a professorship at an Ivy League institution, and they're they finally oh <laughs> maybe you shouldn't have done the engineering degree? Well, the irony is that I, what I really want to do now in my career is actually you know as we were just talking just before this is, is you know work with these really cool new computational techniques that are out there that are um, you know changing the world and that are, in my opinion, going to change science as well, so including the science of human behavior. So it's kind of full circle. <laughs> so your parents were right all the <laughs> They were right. And I'll be honest, they were right. I mean, you know, so if, you've, if you're going to take risks, you've got to really work hard and hope that you're lucky. Because, you know, what, you're an Indian citizen. You know, you're not, it's not easy to, like, stick around in America, you know. If you go back to India, like, what's the point of coming to America for your undergrad, right? Um, it's hard as hell to get a green card, you know. Like, obviously, if you're an Ivy League professor, you can get a green card, and even if you're, you know, STEM uh, PhD, I think it's pretty straightforward. But, but you know, it's it's really, really not easy. So, so they were totally right in telling me to do the safe thing and uh, go with uh, with go with the engineering undergraduate degree. Can you ask you spoke a lot about you know doing 
what figuring out what you want to do can you talk more about like your mental dialogue when you're doing this and the doubt and how you deal with the attraction or the pull towards the mainstream yeah yeah i mean the doubt i mean that's something that maybe uh I didn't mention, you know, there's always doubt and, and uh, you know, we were talking earlier about, about the imposter syndrome, you know, I, everyone has that and I certainly did, especially when I came to, you know, started as assistant professor. That's a pretty, uh, you know, you definitely feel that you're, you know, who knows whether you're, you know, you can cope with the stresses and the pressures and the responsibilities of, of, uh, of, of, of kind of what's expected of you. Um, so there is a lot of doubt. I think what I do is I just shut it out and I just say, you know, screw it, I'm just going to work and like do, do my thing. And if it doesn't work, if it doesn't work. I mean, um, I mean I guess on this topic of risk, I think it's, it's a, so there's, there's only, there's one thing I've learned about life from my own research, which is in, 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 in how people take risks, right? And, and, and it's, it's the following, right? Um, so let's, look, okay, I'll give you an example. Let's say I give you a 50-50 a choice. Uh, like a, a coin flip, uh, and if it lands heads, you get eleven dollars. If it lands tails, you get ten dollars. Uh, you, sorry, you lose ten dollars. Sorry, so you, so you get eleven dollars with a fifty percent chance. You lose ten dollars with a fifty percent chance. All right, the gamble's clear to you guys. Okay, who else would take the coin flip? A anyone? Anyone would take it today? No. So okay, okay, you, you guys would. Okay, <laughs> wonderful. Uh, I, I think it's fine if you don't want to take it um, uh, because the ten dollar loss actually hurts more than the eleven dollar gain. Um, and so, so, you know, there's no chalkboard here, but you draw it like a, you know, a valuation function where, you know, $11 is like nice, but $10 loss is like, ooh, that hurts. Uh, this is standard behavioral result. It's nothing, nothing fancy. You guys have probably come across it in, in, in your own, uh, uh, in your own uh, research. Now, let's say I took this coin flip and I gave it to you. I gave you this choice of the coin flip every day of the week for the next year. Like, I gave you this choice today. Do you want it? I gave you this choice tomorrow. Do you want it? Okay. Now, you're getting this coin flip. I, I tell you I'm going to be this choice every day of the week. Do you want it today? Yeah? Most of you want it, right? Why? Because when you think about the risks that you take on a day-to-day -day basis, if on aggregate they're positive expected value, in the long run you're almost guaranteed to be in the positive domain. So that even though the immediate loss hurts, right, the, the, the gain repeated over many, many gambles is going to be better. It's going to give you an almost deterministic positive payoff. All right? so, so if you are given these risks on a day-to-day -day basis, you've got to take them, especially if they're positive expected value. All right? um, because if you take them on a day-to-day -day basis in the long run, you'll be better off. Uh, and it's not just monetary risks, of course. Right? So it could be like professional risks, but it could also be like social risks. You know? um, Talking to people, emailing, cold, like, you know, emailing someone who you've never met before, whose research you find interesting. I used to find that so aversive. I still do. But it's exactly this risk. Right? If, it, if, they don't, if they don't like you, it'll hurt. It'll hurt you, and maybe they'll like, think you're, whatever, lame, or you know, <laughs> that you're stupid, or whatever. And, but if they do like you, then it's that $11 gain. If you play it every day of your life, you know, you'll, be, you'll be really well off. What's the trick you use to get yourself to do things like that? Because I mean, I, I think that I can speak for most of us in saying that, you know, I can talk to myself about expected values as much as I want, but if I am emailing somebody out of the blue, I'm still going to be really nervous doing it. Yeah, yeah I still am nervous doing it. And, and it's, it's just, you, there's no way you can avoid the psychological displeasure of, uh, of, of, of you know, emailing someone out of the blue. 
uh, and potentially facing rejection. So how, so how do you convince yourself to do it? I mean, simply just do it and like realize on a higher level that it's worth it. And you know, you, just, you think of a, you know, think of you've you've made it sort of like, you know, a, you've you've made a decision based on your understanding of the system and stick with that decision. The decision is going to take a risk every day of your life. A positive expected value. You know, not, not, I'm not saying like, you know, massive risk. Okay, the other, the, the psychological trick that I use, I, I haven't told this to anyone, so this, this could be a, so do you guys know this uh, guy called Gidi Nav? Uh, he's an assistant professor at Warden, a good friend of mine. Um, so Gidi is the kind of person who emails people, and he's, he like knows everyone in any field, like neuroscience, people, econ, psychology, marketing, he knows everyone. Um, and, uh, and, and I have a personal heuristic thing, be more like Giddy. Why? Okay. So, okay, so, just, so when did I realize to be more like Giddy? So, um, last year, I don't know if you guys remember, uh, this guy called Josh Tenenbaum, who's this uh, researcher at MIT, um, he came and gave a talk as part of the MindCore seminar. And, like, I don't do anything that's like, you know, in, the, in that realm necessarily, but I love that work. I mean, I kid you now, we read like, a third of the papers we read in our lab meetings are either his or from his like students and various, you know, collaborators. So I think that stuff is real cool. And for me, I find that to be the most exciting intellectual work that's being done, at least in sort of the computational cognitive science realm, uh, which is, of course, the domain that I find most interesting. So, so, um, so, you know, so he was coming, and I, I don't know who the host was, but I wasn't on his schedule, which is quite standard, right? If you're in a, if you're, you know, what happens if, if someone's coming to give a talk, sometimes some related researchers get to meet with the, with the speaker, um, usually because the host is like, oh, yeah, you, are you interested in meeting with so-and-so? And so, so the host sets the schedule, and for very, very reasonable reasons, I wasn't on Josh Tenenbaum's schedule. As you know, most people obviously weren't on his schedule, and so that's perfectly fine. But I would have liked to be on his schedule, but I wasn't, so eh, I guess that's it. Now, Giddy found out that Josh Tenenbaum is coming. He's like, all right, I'm going to get on his schedule. He sent out an email or two and got a 15-minute meeting with Josh Tenenbaum, which, you know, I, like, I'll be honest, like, if I met with Josh Tenenbaum, then probably would have minimal effect on anything in my career or whatever. It wouldn't hurt, but, but, you know, but if there's anyone who should be meeting with him, uh-huh. between me and Giddy, <laughs> it's me, right? So, 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 you know, so like, so now, whenever I'm in that position, I say, what would Giddy do? Giddy would get on the guy's schedule. So get on his schedule. Giddy would, you know, email someone saying, who cares if they don't respond? Just do it. And, you know, it's not, it's like it hurts, but... You know, what would Giddy do? It's, it's WWGD. I think we all have a Giddy <laughs> of our own yeah, yeah. in mind by now. <laughs> yeah, and everyone should be more like Giddy. I mean, I'm not using him as a sort of, you know, uh, I mean, he doesn't know about this heuristic that I use. If you do talk to him, he's a great guy. But if you do talk to him, then uh, I mean, feel free to share this. I'll, maybe I'll tell him that I brought him up. But, uh, <laughs> but yeah, you know, and, and, and I think it's important to, to do that. And, and um, it's just, you know, it's a, uh, yeah. Yeah, so you talk about like basically choosing like the stuff you're like excited for, like you're interested in. So like as a junior grad student, I always have this feel like I can have like relatively like big picture stuff. I, I'm pretty sure I'm interested in. But like when I came to like choose specific questions, I always like get lost in the process. Like, do you have anything to say about that? Like, yeah, yeah. I mean, I guess it's a question about how to construct a good 
let's see if you're interested in topic X or how do you construct a good paper on topic X? Ultimately, you want to publish something on it, right? Um, yeah, uh, I think at its core, you know, just immerse yourself in, into that world, and what will happen ideally is you'll get ideas. You'll find holes that haven't been filled, at the very lowest of it's holes that haven't been filled, and then, uh, then you might even be like, hey, wait a second, here's a hole that should have been dug. I'm gonna dig. So, so I think if you really immerse yourself, you can sort of get an idea of what's, uh, what's, what's open, what's an open question, what other people are interested in, and then, and then uh, you kind of, I mean, ultimately, I mean, it's all, you, know, you, can, you can romanticize it all you want and say, oh, I'm going to do whatever I want. But ultimately, when you write a paper, it's got to be something that someone else wants to read because they're going to be your reviewers and they're going to be the people who, who evaluate it and decide whether or not it's publishable. Um, so, so part of it is identifying what is it that other people find interesting. What are the questions that other people are asking that they don't yet know the answers to that you can answer? Um, some of it is identifying your own strengths. So it's an arbitrage. Like what, like, there is an open question that you are uniquely suited to answer, maybe not uniquely, but best suited to answer, because those are where your skill sets intersect the, the, the priorities of the field. Uh, so identifying those questions and then kind of committing to it and, 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 and trying to solve them. Now, I'm not, I'm not saying, like, do the research that other people want you to do. That's, in fact, the opposite of what, I'm, you know, of, of what, yeah. what I would say that you do. But, but as you identify research questions, you have to, have, you have to keep these things uh, in mind. I mean, uh, you know, ultimately, you're just a you're producer of content, right? Like, whether it's a YouTuber who's producing content, or a you know, movie producer in Hollywood, or you, you know your audience, know your skills, uh, and, and kind of know what people want. And then within that, there's a lot of uh, uh, room to innovate and decide what you, you like. Um, do you have any, any, any takeaways for just advice on the things that were hard? Yeah, no, I think the do what Giddy does is, is a <laughs> pretty, pretty good motto. Like, seriously, it's, it's, I think people don't, even in a talk, you know, you, why don't, a lot of people are too scared to ask questions, and that's, so I mean, of course, there are people who ask too many questions, maybe I'm one of them, but, but, um, but if you're, don't be scared to ask a question, do what Giddy does. Giddy's going to ask a question, Giddy's going to email the speaker afterwards and sort of introduce himself, and Giddy's going to definitely go on his schedule, so, or her schedule. So, so, uh, so I think those are the kinds of things that you should really force yourself to do. This series is brought to you by MindCore, the Mind and Brain Center for Outreach, Research, and Education at the University of Pennsylvania. This episode was recorded from an event series co-sponsored by the Center for Undergraduate Research and Fellowships and is based on Growing Up in Science, a worldwide conversation series started by Dr. Weiji Ma and Dr. Christina Alberini at New York University. To hear other episodes and watch the video recordings of these conversations, please visit our website's link in the podcast description.